Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. Have you ever volunteered your way into a management role? Well, Tracy Ball has. The founder of Stars and Strollers, a program where parents enjoy a day at the movies with their toddlers, impressed corporate partner Cineplex so much that they bought the idea and made Tracy their manager of group sales and special events. But this is just one of the many roles in the career of Tracy Ball. This watered-down native studied broadcast journalism at Mohawk College. After graduation, she jumped into the entertainment industry, booking talent for campus events. From there, she pivoted into media, holding sales support and leadership positions at the CBC, Sun TV, Palmerex Media, Acuity Ads, among others. She made the jump from media sales into the agency world and now heads up programmatic advertising at InOcean Worldwide Canada. InOcean Worldwide Canada is actually a bit of a unique agency, which is pretty cool. It's owned by our largest client, Hyundai Motor Group. So while we're an agency that buys advertising, creates it, account manages it, et cetera, we're also owned and very tight with our clients. I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I grew up in a really small town uh, just outside of Burlington, Ontario, called Waterdown. Uh, So it's a very small place on the west side of the GTA, sort of near Hamilton. What was life like growing up in Waterdown? So Waterdown was a really small town, right? So it's the kind of place where everybody knows each other. And so while it was great on one hand, it was not so great on the other. Living in a small town actually really made me realize I was meant more for the big city. Waterdown got on my map years and years and years ago because it became one of those pockets that was just exploding with subdivisions. Were you there during that time? Is that when you guys moved into the neighborhood? Yeah, we actually, so I lived in a really small suburb of Waterdown. So now we're talking about a suburb of a suburb of a suburb. (laughs) Yeah, Waterdown isn't one of the towns you think of for having a suburb. I know, right? So Waterdown is actually part of a greater Hamilton area now. And before it became part of that area, further down Highway 6 towards Freelton was a really small village called Carlisle. Four corners, essentially. We had two general stores, a gas station, and that was pretty much it. Did you guys have a stoplight? We did not even have a stoplight. What were your interests or hobbies growing up? I'm an only child, so I didn't grow up with a lot of sisters or brothers. And I really had a lot of adult companionship. I found that uh, my hobbies were more universally single, if that makes sense. So I would write music. Uh, I would sing music. That was pretty much my passion as a kid. I didn't play a lot of sports. My dad was the coach of our baseball team, but I didn't play a lot of sports. That makes sense that you'd be a singer because you're the lead, you're the melody in music rather than taking up, say, a band instrument instrument per se. Yeah. And, and I mean, my family is filled with musicians. So my dad plays piano by ear. My uncle plays the clarinet. We had a bit of a family band, if you will, but I was always the singer. Did you have any influences growing up, anyone that you looked up to? Very similarly along that vein, uh, I had a great aunt, and that sounds really weird, but she was my dad's uncle's wife, much, much younger uh, than my great uncle. And she was a classic Canadian folk singer. Again, not mainstream. Very specific, that's for sure. Very specific and niche, yeah. So 
the thing that I loved about her was her tenacity. She just, she went after what she wanted. She wasn't making a lot of money at doing what she wanted to do, but she lived the dream. I actually remember the first time I walked into her studio in her house, and I couldn't believe that something like that was possible inside your house. That's how much I loved music. Like kind of the whole soundproof room and the whole recording deck and the soundboard, she had everything. A fully decked out studio, like from top to bottom. She actually recorded a couple of albums on her own. Really? Yeah. Independent albums. That's what I'm talking about. Nothing more Canadian than that. You've also cited your dad as being a major influence. In what way? So again, I was an only child, uh, and my parents were both the youngest of three siblings in each of their families. And so being an only child, uh, being a girl, my dad didn't really look at me as a, you know, a little person to put in a tutu. He saw me as a fully abled body to help him do whatever it was he had to do around the house. So he taught me from a really young age how to be self-sufficient, you know, from giving me budgeting templates when I started college so that I could actually live on a budget and thrive. Those are skills I've been able to pass on to my kids, and it's all because of my dad. Those are things they need to teach in school. They right? don't do that. I know. What was your very first job? So my very, very first job was when I was 12 years old, and I worked at a nursery. So again, remember, I grew up in a really small town. Farms were everywhere. And so uh, I got my 10-speed bike, my red 10-speed bike, and I rode it 15 kilometers through those Carlisle Hills, very hilly, and uh, basically worked as a laborer at a flower farm. So I was weeding and pulling and planting, and it was really, really hard work. But the thing about my parents was that they were, um, they were very firm believers in you earn your own keep. So if there were things that I wanted outside of, you know, regular stuff you'd get your kid, I had to buy it myself. So at 12, I was faced with, I want a ghetto blaster. My parents weren't going to buy that for me, so I got a job to go get it. And that's, I think, where the start of my work ethic came from, was understanding that I had to earn money to get what I wanted and therefore learned the value of a dollar. You also stayed in the neighborhood for college. What brought you to Mohawk College and what did you study there? Yeah, Mohawk College. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I had very big dreams of going away to school after high school. Uh, again, I grew up in a small town. I wanted to get out. I knew I wanted to have adventures in life. But unfortunately, my folks just couldn't afford to send me away to school, even though I was accepted uh, at other schools and I didn't really have an opportunity for bursaries in that regard. So Mohawk was a place that was close enough to home, but was still post-secondary. And the other thing about Mohawk was it offered a broadcast journalism program. So back in the day, I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters. I would watch, you know, the People's Choice Awards and every time the People's Choice Awards would run or the Oscars Barbara would do a special right before interviewing like the top A-list celebrities and she made them cry like every single time. She was that committed. Oh, I remember those specials. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to do. And from a very young age, as you can see, I was, I wanted to sing. I was loving entertainment. Actually to go back a little bit, um, when I was a child, my first singing award, uh, was actually when I was at a country jamboree when I was six. And that trophy was actually uh, the back end of a horse. So yes, it was a horse's ass trophy that I still have to this day. Uh, but, but again, so I wanted to be in entertainment. It was where I, I saw my life going. And Mohawk was sort of that place for me to go for broadcast journalism. What was your first gig out of Mohawk? So my first gig out of Mohawk, when I got to Mohawk College, one of the first things I actually did was to get involved in student politics. So I was really involved with the student union. We were writing out um, sort of the new 
the new terms of the student union, and I was the vice president of social activities. So my job on campus was to book in bands and comedians from all over the world for our college students. For like Frosh Week or Bar Nights or anything like that. Exactly. And actually, that was the other thing that we did. We completely revamped our pub nights. So when I got out of school, that's kind of where I went pretty much immediately. I went to work as a talent agent for a company called Frontline Attractions and basically represented comedians uh, and small bands across campuses, across Canada. Did you represent anyone that turned out to be really big that we'd know? Not that turned out to be really big. Um, I represented a band called Shade. They they got pretty big in Toronto back in the day. Uh, And Scared Weird Little Guys, a comedy duo from Australia. They were my favorite. That sounds like an interesting one. They were uh, a tall, skinny dude and a shorter, uh, stout dude. And they just told jokes uh, about Australia and all the adventures they'd been on. And again, it was one of those, you know, highlight acts from that time. But during your time, though, you even had the chance to cover things like, say, the federal election. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when I was at Mohawk in my broadcast journalism program, uh, again, I was really super excited uh, because I got to be a part of the federal election coverage. I worked with uh, Annette Hom, who she's with CHCH today. She was with them at the time. Uh, And I went and covered a riding. It was a PC riding. And unfortunately, the woman lost. So it wasn't good. What would you say is your first gig in media then? First gig in the media world? Well, it was pretty quickly after Frontline Attractions. I was burning out very quickly, as you can imagine. Life on the road, an agent. You sort of start at 11, but you don't finish till 2 or 3 in the morning. It was a fast burnout road for me. You have to be passionate about it. And I was passionate. I just didn't have the liver to support my dreams. (laughs) So essentially, I thought, media, maybe that'll work. And again, my liver wasn't ready. But I digress. So uh, no, my cousin uh, Larry was working at PhD at the time. And he had told me he thought I had the personality for media, which I thought was quite funny. So that was my first foray. I sent a, a resume off and got a job at uh, Western International Media under the tutelage of Lynn Pilot uh, and Amanda Plowman. It was great. I got to work on clients like Bonavista Home Video and Bonavista Pictures, aka Disney, mm-hmm. known today. But the best part about my job was the fact I spent about six hours a day in the Nielsen closet. Now, those people who were buying broadcast 20 plus years ago know exactly what I'm talking about. We would get these books of ratings and we would have to go and post our buys. Mm. Nothing digital about that time at all. It was all pulling out a book, looking at the number and marking it on a sheet. And to see whether or not you posted above what you bought or below. Exactly. And that's where I honed my skill. I actually got to a point where I was able to predict the GRPs in a much better format to build efficiencies for the clients that we were working on. Uh, And so it was through that that I actually got the opportunity at CBC Television. Now, having that kind of crystal ball in television, that's what people want. Exactly. So take us through how you landed at CBC. You mentioned that a lot of your broadcast experience on the agency side took you that way, but how'd you get your foot in the door? So my foot in the door was actually to connect with a really fantastic rep over there. Her name's Sue Knight. And she and I worked together very closely when I was at the agency. And again, it was one of those things where she said, I think you're, I think you're suited to this side of the table. Uh, And I was still fairly new. I'd only been uh, with Western for about two years and I just had my son, so I was returning back to work. Took a chance, ended up in the marketing department, not the sales department. So I wasn't really working on television commercials. I was working on the research side, helping them get to a point where they could predict 
what GRPs were and how to sell that through to the agencies. I'll be honest with you, it was super boring. I had a computer and I had a phone that never rang and I had people <laughs> that worked around me that I never spoke to. And so that it, it didn't last for me very long. I quickly moved over into the sales area at CBC. What was the difference then working between sales and marketing at CBC? The biggest difference between marketing and sales was the fact my phone would ring. The fact I could talk to people, you know, I could, I could now negotiate make goods. I could, you know, work with clients to ensure that we were getting them the best programming. I remember Christmas was always a nightmare for us because people would buy 52 week campaigns. And of course, for all of December, we didn't run regular programming. Oh no, it was all about back in Christmas special days. Exactly. So for us, it was, you know, it was a really big negotiation time. I'm talking people out of the programming that they bought and into specialty programming on a main network that, you know, could change literally year over year. I was also a coordinator in the CBC sales team. You know what really grew on me that not a lot of other people liked? It goes back to what you were saying about trying to predict the future hockey playoffs mm -hmm. because you booked the games blindly. You just knew that there was going to be a game that night, but you didn't know which one or if a series ended early, it was like, great. Now we don't have a game on Friday anymore because it wrapped up in four instead of six games. I got pretty good at that. That was a lot of fun to me predicting that sort of schedule. Oh, and the rush of when the game went into game seven. People have asked me what was the best thing about working at CBC. I said, if you can work there when there is a Canadian team going all the way in the playoffs, it is a pretty special place. have to say another great time to be at CBC is during the Olympics. Yes. I was very lucky to work through, I think, three separate Olympics while I was at CBC. And I even was part of the um, overnight log team. So we would sit in studio and log all of those commercials in real time. I remember that. And especially, too, I mean, there's a chance if you worked through three Olympic games, you probably had one of them happening on the other side of the world. Like mm -hmm. I, when I worked there... It was Beijing, so we had it really early in the morning or late at night, or Torino, which was just all early in the morning. Yeah, we were there literally on 24-hour clocks. Live was being covered over the overnight, and then we would run repeats throughout the day. So you probably were there for Australia or Sydney? I was definitely there for Sydney, so you, yeah. We know what we're, you and I <laughs> both know. Between Beijing and Sydney, they're both 13, 14 hours away. It was a lot of fun. Talk about your move to Cineplex Entertainment, what your role entailed there, and some of the things that you specifically accomplished. Cineplex was the first time in my career I made a move for me and not for what the move was I thought would be best for me. When I was at CBC, I was lucky enough to um, become pregnant with my second child. And after I had her um, on maternity leave, I unfortunately suffered really bad postpartum depression. So we're getting all real here. The good thing was I had a lot of support. So I had an Ontario early years center just down the street from my house. My daughter was less than three days old and I had her in a workshop already at that center. What was really great was the bond I made with the women in that group. And so, of course, I used to go walk around a mall and I was starting to get into debt because I was shopping so much. And sure enough, in the mall I was walking around was a theater. And I thought, why can't we see movies with our kids? Why can't we just go and see a proper film and not get dirty looks when the baby starts to cry or when I need to get out to change a diaper. And so I actually created, while I was on maternity leave, I created a program called Real Moms, R-E-E-L-M-O-M-S. And basically it made me no money. It was to kill time. It was to help me continue to meet more women who were like me, who maybe wanted to get out of the house and do something with their kids. And so I built a website. I spoke with Cineplex originally about a square one location, and that's back when Cineplex was in square one. I remember that. 
So we, uh, I contacted Nicole Cunningham over at Cineplex. We arranged very minimum standards for them to open up during non-business hours and let us come in and watch a movie. So we would have to pay the same rate anybody else did, but they were essentially opening up early for us. Like a 10 a.m. movie, 10.30? Exactly. Or if it was a theater that only opened up for evening screenings, they would open up during the day. Okay. So we went in. I had, I think, two or three screenings, and Cineplex came back to me and said, look, we, we're not making money. We're actually losing money by having the lights on for you to do this. Here's what we need you to do. If you can get at least 50 people to show up to one of these screenings, we can keep the lights on and we can keep doing it. And so I think I surprised both them and myself. I built a website, got the word out, and within about three weeks, we had 75-plus moms showing up to these screenings. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So, it, again, you can't doubt the power of a mom network, and that's exactly what I tapped into. So not only did we have the Square One location, but I actually managed to have four other locations around the GTA, from Niagara Falls all the way out to Ajax, open special screenings just for moms. And so, again, this was while I was on maternity leave. I wasn't making a profit. I was doing it to keep myself busy. It was really helping with my postpartum depression. I was making great friends. But then it came time to go back to work. And it came time to go back to CBC. So I sort of handed the the reins back to Cineplex and said, look, this was great. It was fun. I I can't do this anymore. I I think it's pretty good for community building. You might want to continue to do it. And that's when Greg Mason, uh, who was VP of Marketing at the time for Cineplex, who's now the VP of Disney Canada, uh, reached out to me and said, look, can you, can you come in? We have an idea. And so I went in and I met with him and uh, Sam DeMichel, uh, who was also very large in the Cineplex organization at the time, and they said, put a business plan together. So I did. So I came back to them within about two weeks with a full-on business plan on how to roll out Real Moms across the country. And we negotiated. They ended up buying the rights from me. So I sold all proprietary rights to the program. And then they hired me on to roll it out across Canada, which was pretty cool. So you started a volunteer not-for-profit company, and then you parlayed that into your next career move. Yes. <laughs> I think you're the only guest I've had on the show that's, that's actually done that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was honestly a really exciting time for me. It was both fulfilling and rewarding because it provided a paycheck. Uh, it was hard for me to leave CBC, though, because I'd been there for so long, and I'd sort of developed my career there. But it, this was absolutely the right next step for me. So when you became full-time there, w- what did your role entail? Because looking at the timing of, of, of your tenure at Cineplex, that seemed to be when Cineplex started to become a media company or started to take that more seriously rather than just a concession and film company or a theater or screening company. 100%. Uh, the VP of sales at the time for media was Paul Bolte. And he, uh, he eventually went on to uh, Patterson and a couple of other places. But he had, a, he had a very good vision. We actually actually did Cineplex Awards for commercials that ran in Cineplex theaters that were made for Cineplex theater audiences. So not just repurposing what you did on TV, but uh, if you've ever been to a, the Scotiabank Theater, there used to be a, a highlight reel at the beginning where there were two popcorn buckets and interest rates would pop out of it. What they were trying to do was, was just bring it all together and, and make the movie-going experience better, which was really cool. It was outside of my role. I didn't have anything to do with sort of media sales in that regard, I rolled out the program. We rebranded it to Stars and Strollers from Real Moms. We had to, you know, obviously get some copyright and deal with that. The marketing process of rebranding was super cool. I was glad to be a part of it. But then I also developed their group sales and corporate program. So now you can go to a theater and you can actually rent out the theater and do a 
proper presentation. I was at the ground building that. So what brought you to Sun TV? And would you say that this was your first media sales gig? Moving to Sun TV, there was a little bit of a, a gap between Cineplex and Sun TV. And the reason for that was, unfortunately, there were three different mergers and acquisitions that happened with Cineplex over the course of the time that I was there. So they were Cineplex Odeon, then they became Cineplex, then they, they became Galaxy, and then, of course, they merged with famous players. So I was lost in that shuffle. Uh, you know, they I built the program. It was running pretty self-sufficiently. Numbers were numbers, so I had to go. I quickly moved into uh, a web development company called AKA New Media. And basically the job I had there was to help insurance companies build their own websites. So brokerages building websites to reach out to consumers. They were trying to get more digital and away from direct mail. I was there for about a year. It wasn't very long. It wasn't where my heart was. And so when the opportunity at Sun TV came up, I jumped at it. It was a local sales position, television sales, working for a television station that was sort of unidentified at the time. I was part of the original Rogers One uh, grouping of television stations when they uh, grew their, their property values. And then it was sold to Quebecor and then became Sun TV. And so I didn't do national sales. We were one small station in Toronto only, but we still dealt with you know fairly large advertisers. The difference was these were advertisers who had never really done television before. Uh, I remember a big spa I worked with. Uh, they wanted to be in the SAG Awards, and Sun TV actually ran the SAG Awards before it was moved over to a you know a bigger network. And so that was pretty cool, right, to be able to work with a very small local company to make a spot, to actually film a spot and then have it run in such a prestigious show. I actually remember uh, the cash man. Oliver Jeweler. Oh, who can forget him? So the, you know, I'm the cash, cash man. man. Yeah, that guy. So that was actually filmed by the Sun TV crew. Uh, and I remember being there when that was all going on and, and everybody thinking it was such a disaster, but it was so fantastic when it came out and nobody forgets it. It's so catchy and wonderful. Oh, that jingle still carries on. hundred percent. So that's, that's sort of, was it my first real media sales job? A hundred percent. But at the same time, it was still not just media sales. But you've said, though, even though you were in television and you had a great time there, your heart was in digital. Talk to us about how Savvy Mom changed that for you. Absolutely. So I was at Sun TV for a couple of years. Uh, and, and again, television. I love TV. I watch a lot of TV. I'm one of those people who probably will never cut the cord. But at the same time, everything was digital. And I've always had not this foresight, if you will, but a little bit of a premonition. And I saw digital just taking over everything. And so the opportunity at Savvy Mom Media came up and they were essentially a really niche website targeting moms specifically. And it was through my Stars and Strollers program that I had met the founders of Savvy Mom. And so I, I was brought on as, you know, sort of a director of sales, but the product offering was very small. They were doing email news blasts. They were building out an offering but I'll be honest with you, it wasn't truly digital. It was very small. We had an office above a bookstore, you know, over in Leaside. Very humble beginnings. Very, very humble beginnings. And as we know, they've, they've now sold and they're part of a, a much bigger network, which is great. But for me, it kind of opened my eyes to digital and it made me realize that it really was a passion point for me, but I needed something bigger. But that bigger opportunity came about and it was the weather network. What brought you over there? Weather. Weather actually brought me over there. I'm 
I'm, I'm going to tell you, I do have a little bit of a passion point when it comes to storms. And uh, funny enough, when I heard of the opportunity through a friend of a friend uh, over at Palmerex, I remember meeting with the HR person in my very first interview. There was some massive storm. And where Palmerex is, it's sort of at a crossroads in the middle of nowhere in Oakville. So it's got, you know, wide open fields and farmlands around it. There is some, you know, um, residential and commercial, but for the most part, it's a little bit open, it's a little bit spacey. It's just in between kind of where the 403, the 401 and the, no, 403 the and the 407 intersect between Mississauga and the QEW. Yeah. So as you can imagine, you know, there's a lot of space. So wind picks up in the area. I think it helps the, uh, the guys when they're outside doing their broadcasts, they can, you know, see a lot of stuff that's happening behind them. It keeps it authentic. It does keep it authentic. But I ended up just going on and like ridiculously on and on because I was so nervous about this storm that was coming in. And the HR person actually said to me at one point, you know, you're, you're really into weather. You should probably work here. And that was, that was probably my first indication that I was going down the right road. What was the biggest difference between selling television and selling digital media? The difference between selling television and digital, I think it all came down to accountability. You know, at the end of the day, the thing that the promise of digital is that we can follow it. We can understand fairly quickly whether something's working or not versus television where we were, it's all based on surveys and probabilities. Digital was pretty accurate. So being at Palmerex, the good news was we had the power of broadcast because, of course, the Weather Network is a top watch channel, and they were moving into the digital space. So the website was really fairly new, um, probably less than 100 million visitors a month. Uh, they had just started to build out mobile properties. They would build out desktop widgets. So it was really at the infancy of prog- of. Palmerex Digital. Was it a cold shower going from TV to digital sales or was it a pretty fairly easy adjustment? I think the cold shower for me between broadcast and digital came from the fact I went from selling local broadcast to selling national digital. That in itself was a pretty big jump. Uh, When I was at Sun TV, I was dealing with local advertisers. I wasn't dealing with a lot of national agencies and that changed when I went to Palmerex. I got to work on huge accounts like Molson and Labatt and GM, big national accounts that I could get really excited about working with. So you had to reboot your contact list practically. It, it, was, it was at zero. I had no contact list. So when I got hired, I was hired under the promise of I would hit the ground running. I would work my butt off to get that network built because I didn't have those contacts to bring over with me. What was the difference like working, say, downtown Toronto for Sun TV and then working on national accounts based in suburbia. I loved working in suburbia. It was fantastic because I was from that area. I'm from the West End. So my commute was like 25 minutes versus the hour and a bit it is today. So it was really exciting to work at the Weather Network. And the fact that it wasn't downtown and it was more isolated, it was good. But what brought you to Acuity? programmatic, the promise of something new and something different. So as you can sort of feel through my career, I've always been on that what's next, right? I've, I've tried to predict or be ready for whatever came next. And I'd been at Palmerex for five years. I had the largest accounts. Uh, you know, I was killing it. It was a walk in the park. That was the problem. It was a walk in the park. I stopped learning. I stopped being challenged. The only thing that was challenging was the size of my target. That was it. 
And in sales, you know, you're only as good as you are hitting your target. You're only as good as your last quarter. Exactly. So, and, and I was doing well. I, I don't want you to think I wasn't, but you know, I started to see budgets and, and things moving into this space uh, at Palmrex that I couldn't touch. So it was under Paula Festus. She was our SVP of sales. Amazing working under Paula. She brought in Tony Patel, who had been with her at Yahoo. And the best part about Tony was that he was patient. You know, I actually look at him as almost the father of programmatic in Canada because he challenged what programmatic was at the very beginning. You know, we had Andrew Casali coming to Palmerex saying, no, you're going to get cents on every dollar. This is how programmatic works. And then I had Tony saying, no, I'm going to probably charge three or four bucks. I don't want to charge pennies. And then there was this whole shift in how do we understand the true value of what it is we're selling? And so for me, once I realized that data could be put onto a programmatic play, they weren't just buying the odds in digital. They were able to really predict and value those customers or those eyeballs on the site individually. That was just next level cool for me. And talk about your initial role there at Acuity. What did that entail? So the fact that I was learning all of this stuff at Palmerex, but wasn't able to touch it, wasn't able to affect it. That's actually why I moved to Acuity. For me, I wanted to be a part of programmatic. I didn't want to be on the sidelines. And so Acuity, scrappy, Canadian, self-built DSP. That's exciting. I was learning something new, a skill that I figured was going to end up helping me further down the road. And again, Acuity, Canadian. I wasn't joining into a company that was already established in the U.S. and just trying to break into Canada. This was a company built in Canada, run by people who lived here, who lived amongst the advertisers we were trying to win. That was really exciting to me. Three months in, I was like, holy crap, what have I done? This is the biggest failure of my career. I didn't know how to sell it. I didn't understand it. I didn't have time to learn because I was hitting the ground running. I was scared, man. Like the first time in my career, I was terrified that I'd made a really big mistake. The best thing that I had going for me there was not only that this company was Canadian and that it was built from the ground up, they owned their own technology. They also hired really awesome people. So I was working right beside Chris Griffith. I was working beside Raymond Reed, who now runs Digital Ad Labs, which is a programmatic course being taught out of Sheridan. I mean, there was a lot of really cool people that I was able to work with. And thankfully, they saw something in me that wasn't sales. They saw an opportunity to lead and teach and grow this programmatic piece through enterprise, which was more of a self-serve solution. So instead now of going out and trying to sell the way I could manage a campaign, I was selling an opportunity to somebody else. This is something you can do for yourself. You can learn this. You can build this for yourself. Because that's the way programmatic started was it was all IO based. We're still going to do what the competition does, but it's going to be programmatic. You'll have more efficient rates. But as you said, then there was a bit of a shift. Why don't you use our platform trading desks and whoever and just do it yourself? So you were really on the, you were on the cusp again because it became, as it became self-serve. Because I'd say self-serve programmatic didn't start at the beginning. Absolutely not. And the problem was because nobody understood it. I mean, think about me. I was trying to sell how I was going to manage a campaign, but I didn't understand how the infrastructure underneath worked. So when Ray said, no, man, I think you need to come over with me, come over to the enterprise side of the world, you'll get a whole new view of how this tech works, and then your job will be to teach other people how to use it. There's no better way to learn a product than by having to teach it to somebody else, because you have to know it inside and out. 
It's like being a tutor. 100%. So I was super pumped about that opportunity. And I'll be honest, within a month, I knew I was in the right spot. Same company, different position, and now I was really affecting change. So I, I got to be not only enterprise teacher, I then got the opportunity to help build the tech. Give me the difference between selling IO-based media and selling a platform. Selling an IO, it, it looks exactly the way direct sales does. It, it doesn't change. Just because it's programmatic means you have a couple more things to target. But it looks and it feels exactly like a direct sale. So you're going out for lunch and you're, hey, what campaign's coming down and can I RFP on that? The buyer didn't understand the difference. The buyer saw it as, well, this is just programmatic, so this is another way for me to buy versus going and calling the weather network and buying direct. The challenge in that was that people did still didn't understand the tech. So when it came time to now try and sell them through on an enterprise solution, I was actually selling opportunity. I was selling, hey, so if you had this kind of campaign, you could use this type of targeting. And if you had this kind of campaign, you could remarket to this kind of audience. And it was super high level, not near the knowledge I have today, but it was enough to entice people. People wanted to touch and feel and learn. And so now the presentation wasn't about, hey, what can I do for you today? What can you do for me today? It was, here's what we're going to do together. And agencies wanted to be left alone to activate on their own too. So it was a perfect time. They wanted to be left alone, kind of. They wanted to have transparency. They wanted to have hands on keyboards. But man, when there was a problem, they had no problem reaching out to us and expecting us to fix the problem for them. It was sort of like the toddler who's crying for water. Well, you can teach the toddler how to go get their own water. Or you can get water for them. And I think that was what, the, what we had done too long is we kept getting the water for them. So now that you're on the agency side, are you asking for water? I'm not asking for water. <laughs> Actually, I am. I'm asking for purple water at a certain temperature. The difference on the agency side is that, thankfully, I know the questions to ask out of our partners. And so nice segue. Is that what brought you to InOcean and the agency side of the business? Yeah. At Acuity, things were great. Uh, it was very challenging. It was very exciting. I was traveling a lot. I have uh, four kids at home. So as you can imagine, I was missing them quite a bit. And then InOcean reached out to me in regards to coming over to help them build a desk. The one thing that I really love about InOcean is the opportunity to build. Again, when I was at Acuity, I was building a self-serve platform. And so that was really exciting. We could add new products and new technology and new techniques. But it was one platform. It was only one view of how to access a consumer. And so the good news was when I came over here to InOcean, I actually could touch all the technology. Now I could have everybody working together to help build the right kind of campaign to reach the right kind of audience. So now that you've got multiple vendors coming in, I guess to a certain degree doing the job that you had done previously, you're learning anything different from them? I'm learning that a few unopened emails in your inbox is okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I was on the sales side, I think uh, I would have anxiety if I had more than five unopened emails. Because of course, when you're in sales, if that email isn't opened, you don't know the opportunity. On this side, I love asking hard questions of my partners. I love asking them to do something that I'm not even sure can be done because it raises the bar, not just for them, but for my clients as well. Is and it I, strange being on the receiving end though from sales reps? It is. It took a little while to get used to, I won't lie. Uh, the first, probably the first six months 
was really hard. I responded to every single email and Thank I responded you. to every phone call. You're welcome. Thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> um, simply because I'd, I'd been in your shoes. I knew what it felt like to be like, hey, I've got this really great opportunity and have nobody responding from the other side. So the one thing I think I offer to my partners is I offer some pretty good honesty and transparency. The problem with honesty and transparency is that it's honest. No, we like that. We say we don't, but we like that. You've also given back quite a bit to the advertising community. Uh, looking back at one of the not-for-profits you participated in, the Advertising Club of Toronto. Talk about the different roles and things that you've done there. Back at Palmerex when I first started, I think we talked about this earlier, my contact base was Big Fat Zero. And so Jennifer DeFrenza was working at the Palmer, uh, was working at Palmerex at the time, uh, probably the top rep there at the time as well. She was winning that year that I started, so 2008. She won Advertising Rep of the Year. And I remember going to the, the Digital Day event. I think at the time it was called uh, Internet Day. Internet Day. Oh, Internet Day. And, uh, and I just was like, I got to be a part of this. And so I connected, thankfully, with Jamie Thompson, uh, who was president at the time. And he was like, yeah, sure. We could use all the volunteers we can get. So he plumped me onto the Golf Day Committee which was lots of fun. I was on that committee for six years and I think I was co-chair for four, which was really exciting. And we moved it around and, and got a lot of advertisers involved. But I think the biggest reward I got was when I moved on to the board. Um, after Maladin became president, he actually had asked me to move off of golf day and into the holiday committee and to run that group. And that was really exciting for me. Uh, because I was moving into a full-on chair position, but at the same time, I was also now seated at the board. So every month we would get together and we would have these meetings and it wasn't just about my event. It wasn't just about what I was doing to help Ad Club. It was what Ad Club was doing to help our industry. You know, we were giving bursaries to college and university students throughout Toronto. We were helping our peers and, and that became really important to me to give back. And so it became a very big part of who I was for a really long time. Holiday party, the first year I was on, uh, I think we did pretty well financially as far as fundraising, but the second year we killed it. And the only reason that we killed it was because that bursary was in the back of my mind. How many more kids can we help? How many more young adults can we help get into this business with the right footing? Um, and so that was really great for me. So I did holiday party for two years, and then uh, Adam became president and uh, he suggested that I move on to an educational event. I'd raised a fair amount of money, raised the bar on those holiday parties. And so Digital Day, or Internet Day as it was called at the time, was like one of the largest fundraising events that Ad Club did. So that's a lot of pressure, right, to like move into that kind of role. But I was really excited when Jen and I, Jen, Jennifer DeFrenza, and I were teamed up together to do it. So again, we'd known each other from Pelmerex. We'd been friends for a long time. She's just as hardcore as I am about everything. And so we would literally spend every day, every other day, sending text messages. I would text her all hours because I was up really early and she was up really late. And so we would just go back and forth with ideas. Um, and then I think, you know, we ended up delivering some pretty great events. And Digital Day. I mean, when you guys took it on, it was probably, what, just over 400 people? And in the two events that you guys chaired or co-chaired together, it went up to 500 and then I think 700? Yeah. So it was really exciting. We were doing it at the Liberty Grand. Um, the first year Jen and I hosted, 
I won't lie. We were actually praying for people not to show up at the event because we'd actually oversold oh boy. the seating. So there was uh, enough room. There were 60 tables of 10, uh, and we were expecting 65, uh, sorry, 650 people to show up to the event. Thankfully, uh, we had a full house, but we didn't have anybody standing. So, so that was pretty good. And I think the other thing that changed that year was our keynote. So we decided not to do uh, someone in the industry that year. We decided to bring in uh, Dave Howlett, who is a personal speaker, all about how to be just better people in life. And I think the reason that we went to that speaker specifically was because Jen and I were watching what was happening in the industry. And again, this was like three years ago where there's so much disruption and chaos happening in our industry. We forgot how to be nice to each other. We forgot how to... be real people. There was other. a lot of anguish going on back then. That's for sure. Yeah. So it was more of a, hey guys, let's let's figure out a way we can all work together. Let's let's just learn a couple of different tips and tricks on how to be good to each other and be in first gear instead of third gear where everything's passive aggressive and crazy. And I remember after that event, a lot of people came up to us saying, wow, that was so cool. It wasn't a sales pitch. It wasn't a new product. It was somebody actually teaching me how to be a better person in life. Dave's done this podcast, so if anyone listening wants to go back, you can hear Dave's story there. If you could go back in time and give your younger self any advice, what would it be? I think I'd tell myself to not worry so much. One of the things I do is uh, I worry about everything. I take everything personally. It's probably one of my worst characteristics. And so if I could go back in time, I would tell myself to not stress out. Obviously, my tenaciousness, if you will, would continue I think some of my fear spurred on career moves. Again, I was watching my budgets go to programmatic, so I thought I better get over there. Follow the money. Follow the money. But at the same time, I think I gave myself a lot of undue stress that I could have saved myself from. My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I would be Barbara Walters 2.0, like for sure. If I hadn't gotten bit by the advertising bug when I was in college... I, I for sure would have gone down that path of being an entertainment Well, journalist. the way journalism is going, we need a Barbara Walters 2.0. We do. We need many more Barbara Walters out there. <laughs> Tracy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. It's been fun. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at VicGenova. 